evening, everyone. It's good to see all of you. This seems like a nice, cozy group tonight. You know, I should just have you come up and just kind of sit around here. That'd be great sometime. I'm going to do that one of these times. Well, you know, Peter Drucker, in his book, Managing in a Time of Change, makes the observation that every few hundred years, we cross a divide. Within a few short decades, society rearranges itself, its worldview, its basic values, its social and political structures, its arts, its key institutions. And 50 years later, there is a new world. And the people born then cannot even imagine the world in which their grandparents lived and into which their parents were born. We are currently living through just such a transformation. You know, I believe that there is no better time in which to live in all of human history than in the span of time in which we are currently living. As Drucker has insightfully discerned, we are crossing a divide in our culture. And it has major implications for the church and for every single follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, these are exciting times in which we're living. Significant days to be alive. And there's no better time than to make a difference for Jesus Christ than right now. Let me show you what I mean. Take a look at this graph. This is from church leader Kevin Penry. And what this shows is the number of people living from the time of Jesus to the present and then on into the future. Now that purple band that you see represents us. That's our lifetime or most of ours anyway, approximately 1950 to 2050. Now follow that yellow line from its beginning point on the left across the baseline to the right. Now you can see that throughout most of history, the population has remained fairly stable. Now focus in on that purple band. Look at the population during our lifetime. I mean, it just absolutely explodes. In fact, it just goes off the chart. Never before in the history of the world has this happened. Never before have there been more people on this planet. And since God's purposes are being actively fulfilled, this truly has major spiritual significance. Now think about this. The advancements that we are currently seeing in education with computers and technology in our lifetime, it's just completely unprecedented. The world has become smaller. Never before in the history of the world have people been so more connected relationally and digitally than right now. And by the end of 2012, there were over 2.5 billion mobile phone subscriptions in the developing world alone. I mean, everywhere you go, people are using some kind of mobile device. China today has more smartphone users than the entire population of the United States. Over 400 million smartphones were sold worldwide in the second quarter of 2013 alone. And we're only halfway through our lifetimes. Just imagine what must be coming next. And because of these advances advances in technology, the church has more opportunity to communicate the gospel around the world today than any other time in its history, even reaching into the most hostile of environments. I mean, the Bible can be downloaded off the internet in seconds in hundreds of different languages. 
People have more access to the Word of God in their own language, more access to information about Christianity now more than ever before. Now think about this. Let's go back to the graph for just a moment. Look at that purple band again. If that represents the span of our lifetime, that's the space where we've been given the opportunity to make the greatest impact for Jesus Christ. Whatever influence that we can have, whatever contributions that we can offer, whatever kingdom advancement that we can make for God, whatever way that we'll become the person God has intended for us to be, it's going to happen within that tiny band of purple. And it's within that band that God has called us to participate in something that is just far greater than ourselves, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to an unprecedented amount of people. You know, if we truly believe that God so loves the world, that he sent his son so that no one, no one should perish, if that's what's really on the heart of God, and if we've been invited by him to join him in his work, then I believe that we are at a hinge point in history. There's no more opportunistic time than right now to spread the gospel here, near, and far. Now, does that get you excited? Really? That's it? Wow, what a group tonight. Well, I got my work cut out for me. I got to pump you up somehow tonight. I want to challenge you on this last weekend of the year to embrace your calling, the calling that you've received from God. You know, earlier this year, over 900 of you purchased the study Experiencing God. Now, that's a study that helps us look at the purposes of God for our life, to discover where God is working and then to work there. Now, if you haven't finished it, I just want to encourage you to keep at it. If you have finished it, what are you going to do with what you've learned? How are you going to put that into action in your life? And if you've never thought before about what God has called you to do with your life, 2014 is the perfect year to begin that discovery. And we have our staff here that are ready and willing to help you understand that. You know, that's why we're beginning this next weekend, the the first of the new year, with a major reach into our community. That's why we've been talking about this Duck Dynasty weekend. We want to set the bar high for the new year as we reach here through the Hobson campus. And we want this campus to just be continually be an open invitation for anyone who wants to discover more about God. In 2014, a new senior pastor is going to come to the Compass Church. And he's going to bring fresh and compelling vision that will move us forward on into the next decade. So get ready and keep praying. Plans for a third campus is going to emerge into reality this next year. You're going to hear more about that in just the next few weeks. But we want that third campus to be located where it's going to have the optimum impact to draw more people and to reach more people for Jesus Christ. We want to open a daycare center at our 95th Street campus. And we want that to be a ministry that reaches into our community, you know, touching the lives of single moms and low-income families and, and just reaching out to the greater community with the love of Jesus. And through our Hobson campus, we'll be challenging more and more of you 
to get involved in our local reach efforts through ministries such as Kids Hope that assist children in public schools. You're going to see us step up our efforts into Page County with ministries that come alongside the poor and the marginalized. We are currently exploring partnerships with several key local churches in this area to make that happen. You're going to hear more about that. In addition, as we reach near and far, we're going to see an increasing amount of church planners trained and more churches established. Thousands of more reached and through our partnerships in Haiti and Europe and South and Southeast Asia. You know, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been called by the most influential person in all of history, Jesus of Nazareth, the God of the universe. Do you realize just how awesome that is? I mean, God has called you. And don't think that a calling is reserved for somebody else. It's reserved for you. And it's just an amazing privilege to be called by God and to join him in his work. Oz Guinness, in his book, The Call, writes that the concept of calling in the Bible has to do with the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything that we are, everything that we do, and everything that we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and his service. Now, when I first came across this definition a few number of years ago, I, I just had to chew on it for a while. It was pretty heavy. I had to let it sink in. And, but, you know, it, it really resonated with me. It excited me because I began to see that God wanted to use me, that he had purpose for me, and that my life was to be lived out as a personal response to his summons. You know, and when that gets a hold of us, especially as we negotiate the the challenges of the extraordinary times in in which we live, it it just provides a, a bright light on the path of discovering what God wants us to do with our life. You know, when God is ready to do something, he finds a man or a woman to do it. He looks for those who are willing to say yes to him. It's amazing how much of the content of the Bible focuses on the lives of men and women of faith, accomplishing that which they thought they could never, ever do. Do you notice as you read through the Bible, though, that how much of its pages are just penetrated with personality? Men and women who are no different than any one of us here tonight, but whom through the Holy Spirit used to reveal truth through their lives? You know, it's difficult to come away from reading about the lives of Abraham and Moses and David, Ruth and Esther and and people like Daniel and so many others and not be stirred in our own hunger and thirst to be obedient to the purposes of God in our life. And if those names are sometimes just way too high and and too lofty to to get our heads around, what about the no-names that are in the Bible. I love the no names of the Bible because that just, I know it includes me. You know, there are a lot of people who have stood up for God in their generation and we don't even know who they were. They remain anonymous, but they trusted God with their lives and gave their all for him. Hebrews 11 is a great example. Take a look at this. But others trusted God and were tortured, 
preferring to die rather than to turn from God and be free. They placed their hope in the resurrection to a better life. Some were mocked, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in dungeons. Some died by stoning, and some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about in skins of sheep and goats and hungry and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. I mean, these are extreme conditions, to say the least, but you can imagine what they went through. These were people of faith who decided to take a stand for God. You know, when I read a passage like this, it just really challenges me. I mean, what we typically deal with doesn't even come close to what they've experienced. You know, but I can't say that God's purpose for me is too hard, that I can't possibly do it, because they did it, and they were trusting in the one who had called them. So what kind of person does God use? You know, people choose individuals based on what they are. But God chooses individuals based on who they'll become, who he'll make them to be. Such can be said of a person, the prophet Elijah. I want to focus on his life with you this weekend as as an example because his life has so much to say to us. You know, Elijah made himself available and God shaped him into the person that he wanted him to be. And he just suddenly shows up in the Old Testament in the, in the midst of the book of 1 Kings. He, just out of nowhere and without any warning. One author writes about him that Elijah appeared at zero hour in Israel's history. Like a meteor, he flashed across the inky blackness of Israel's spiritual night. The opening words of 1 Kings 17 just simply says, Now Elijah, who is from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God whom I worship and serve, there will be no rain during the next few years unless I give the word. I mean, this is an absolutely amazing statement to make. I mean, he's speaking to the king here. And from what we know about Elijah and where he came from, he is just way out of his element. Let me give you a little background, though, that leads up to this point in Elijah's life. For over a hundred years, the people of God lived under three kings. It was Saul, David, and then Solomon. These kings were certainly not without sin and not without major failure in their lives. But the land of Israel prospered under their reign. At the end of Solomon's life, a civil war broke out in the land. And the once united kingdom became divided. And it remained divided until they both fell into foreign captivity. Now in the north, there were 19 kings that reigned. Every one of them were wicked. Not one of them had any concern for the things of God. The northern kingdom ended when the Assyrians invaded and and it just disappeared off the scene of world history. Those who went to the south... They fell under the leadership of 17 kings. Nine of those kings were good. Now, the southern kingdom's history ends with the Babylonian captivity. 
And this kingdom was later renewed and revived under godly leaders such as Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel. And when you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, you come across the word Israel. That refers to the northern kingdom. When you come across the word Judah, that's referring to the southern kingdom. Now, I just gave you a big chunk of the history of the Old Testament. But what I really want you to remember is this. Elijah lived during the days of that northern kingdom, the kingdom that had 19 wicked kings. I mean, he was called by God to go into that kind of mess. Some of you know what it means to try to live out your faith in the context of of messy people in messy situations. Maybe you're a student at a secular school or a university, and I'm sure you feel the sting at, at times of And the isolation that comes is perhaps being just a lone voice for Jesus Christ on your campus or in your dorm or among your friends. Maybe you've been ridiculed by teachers and professors or classmates that just scoff at your attempts to write papers or or talk about issues that stand for biblical truth. Or maybe some of you here tonight have family members with hearts that, that are just far away from God. And you know how difficult it is to to bring any sense of God into your home. To live out your faith before them. Some of you might have jobs that are just immersed into hostile environments. And maybe you begin each morning wondering how you're just going to get through the day. If that's truly where, where you really need to be. And you question sometimes what difference can you possibly make in situations like that. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to take a look at some principles here tonight. 1 Kings is about one-third of the way in, just after Joshua and Judges and the books of Samuel. I want to look briefly at a few of these 19 wicked kings, just to give you a sense of what they did to the nation of Israel, because it helps us understand this messy situation that Elijah had to deal with. And maybe it will help us a bit about the messy situations that we find ourselves in at the same time. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 33. It's on page 285 in the Seatback Bibles. I want to look first at Jeroboam. He was the first king of the northern kingdom. Look what it says. Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways. He continued to choose priests from the rank and file of the people. Anyone who wanted to could become a priest for the pagan shrines. This became a great sin and resulted in the destruction of Jeroboam's kingdom and the death of all of his family. Soon after Jeroboam's deception and his idolatry came the reign of a king called Baasha. Look at 1 Kings 15 verse 29. He immediately killed all the descendants of King Jeroboam so that not one of the royal family was left. Well, Baasha ruled Israel for 24 years like that. And then came Elah and then Zimri. Look at chapter 16, verse 8. Elah, the son of Baasha, began to rule over Israel two years. Then Zimri, who commanded half of the royal chariots, made plans to kill him. One day in Terza, Eli was getting drunk at the home of Arza, the supervisor of the palace. 
Zimri walked in, struck him down, and killed him. I mean, can you believe this stuff? And this is just a sampling. I mean, read through these chapters, and when you get a chance, and you're going to see all the things that they were doing. Nothing but 60 years of of bloodshed and murder, deception, conspiracy, hatred, and idolatry. And the Bible never sugarcoats anything. It just gives us straight truth. All of this came from the top down, from the leaders. It came from the throne, from the seat of power. And then it trickled down into the lives of the people. If you think that it couldn't possibly get any worse, it does. The throne then went over to Ahab, who married a woman named Jezebel. Take a look at 1 Kings 16, verse 30. Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any other king before him. And as though it were not enough to live like Jeroboam, he married Jezebel and began to worship Baal. First he built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any other of the other kings of Israel before him. You know, it was never convenient nor comfortable to take a stand for God in that generation. And believe me, it never is. But while 7,000 followers of God were huddled in a cave escaping persecution, not wanting to get involved. Elijah the Tishbite breaks in with a bold word from God. And he communicates the truth of God to a generation that is just in chaos. You know, I believe that God has called us to be an Elijah to our generation. That's why we are here, to be a voice for him. Because if there was truly no better time to make a difference for Jesus Christ than right now during our lifetime. And if we are truly living within that purple band where we have the greatest opportunity in history to take a stand for Jesus Christ, then we need to be available. We need to be a bold voice for God. You know, that might just begin with a a cup of coffee with a friend, with a an invitation to come to church, being present in someone's life through a hardship or through a crisis, you know, as you build relationships with others. But know this, God wants to use you. So I want to give you three principles from Elijah's life that that will help us to become a, a bold voice for him, a bold voice for God as you live out your life before him. The first one is this. Be convinced of the presence and power of God in your life. Be convinced of the presence and power of God in your life. You know, as you begin reading chapter 17 of 1 Kings, Elijah is in the palace engaged in a bold confrontation with King Ahab. And he tells Ahab that there'll be no dew or rain over the next few years unless Elijah says so. Now, he just doesn't make this statement on his own. These are words of judgment directly from God, designed to strike right at the core of Ahab's wicked heart. You know, Ahab had long forgotten the the gracious hand of a loving God. So now some of those assumed gifts that he just took for granted, like 
those things were going to be removed. The dew and the rain. The land was, was going to dry up. And while Ahab and his predecessors thought that they had just successfully extinguished the worship of God from the northern kingdom, they forgot about one man. One man who had been listening to the voice of God, who knew that God was alive and present in his life. A man who was totally convinced of of the power of God's word. You know, a number of years ago, there was a university student who attended an evangelism conference in Amsterdam. It was sponsored by the Billy Graham Association. There were over 5,000 evangelists and church planners from majority world countries in attendance. And this young man happened to be the only representative from his country, and, and nobody there spoke his language. He had come at great sacrifice and expense and So the officials of the conference just searched, and they finally found someone who could speak his language and who could translate for him. Well, they went with this translator to his hotel room to just tell him the good news. And as they arrived to to his room, this young man thought they were coming to ask him to leave. So he just grabbed onto the headboard of his bed, and he just desperately wanted to stay. So they asked him, well, how can we help you? I mean, what can we do to make your ministry more effective. And he told them that in the last two years of my ministry, I've seen thousands of my people respond to the gospel and place their faith in Jesus Christ. There's revival that's breaking out all over my country. But he said, you know, I, I only have three pages of the Bible. Do you think that you could get me a complete Bible in my own language? You see, what he had learned was just three pages of God's Word. It was showing up in his life. His obedience was in alignment with his knowledge. You know, there are many, many people who come to church week in and week out who have a lot of Bible knowledge in their heads, but very little of it just shows up through their hearts. This man had three pages of the Bible, but he was obedient to the three pages that he had. And God spoke through him in a very powerful way. See, Elijah responded to God in obedience. And he came before Ahab with the few words that God had given him. Because he was just absolutely convinced in the presence and power of God in his life. That's who God is looking for in any generation. People who respond to his calling in their lives. One man... One woman who responds in obedience to the presence and power of God in their life. Elijah declared before Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. He knew that he served a living God. He knew that that God was going to take action. You know the most convincing truth about Christianity? Is the power to change lives. It's power to transform us from the inside our character, our morality, our, the way that we act toward each other. Those that within our sphere of influence, they're generally not overwhelmed and impressed simply by what we say. They'll, con- they'll be convinced by that which they themselves cannot produce. And that's a life changed by the power of the living God. Your life that's been transformed by Jesus Christ.
We need to show them that difference that Christ has made in our lives by what we do more than by just what we say. In other words, what is it in your life that cannot be explained in any other way other than that God has done it? Have you thought about that? Can you describe what that would be? What is it in your life that demonstrates that God is alive? See, Elijah stood in the gap in his generation because he was convinced that he was standing before God. And he was far more aware that he was standing in the presence of God than he was standing in the presence of King Ahab. That's what gave him the boldness to speak up. Second, embrace your calling from God. Embrace that calling. Notice again what Elijah says in 1 Kings 17.1. He says, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God whom I worship and serve. See, Elijah knew that he was called to worship and serve the living God. So he just made himself available to whatever God needed and what God, how God wanted to use him. Even in the midst of a nation that was just in moral chaos. You know, we are told in 1 Kings 19 that, that 7,000 of God's people were hiding in a cave. So what could Elijah possibly do by himself? You ever feel that way sometimes? You know, God looks for one man, one woman who will become his personal representative, his voice, someone who has the courage to speak while others are hiding. And some of you might be the only voice for God in a given situation, and you wonder at times, can I make a difference by myself? See, Elijah embraced his calling. He believed that that one plus God constitutes a distinct majority. Do the math. No matter what the circumstances that you're facing, no matter what or how threatening or adverse the conditions that you're dealing with are, are that, that you're in, no matter how difficult it may be to live out your faith for Jesus Christ, this equation always comes out the same. You plus God constitutes a distinct majority. So the question is, is not what can I do, but what is God going to do through me? Be convinced of the presence and power of God in your life. Embrace your calling. And then third, rely upon the resources that are available to you from God. Rely upon the resources that God has made available to you. I want to jump ahead into the New Testament to help us to apply this last one. The book of James gives us some additional insight into Elijah's life that the Old Testament doesn't provide. Turn to James chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. That's on page 948 in the Seatback Bible. James chapter 5. And James says here that Elijah was as, as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for the next three and a half years. Then he prayed for rain and down it poured. The grass turned green and the crops began to grow again. See, James tells us that Elijah's courage to confront the king and his generation was a direct result of his prayer life. How did he know to pray in such a way? 
when he knew the Word of God. In fact, he was immersed in it. And he knew what God had said in Deuteronomy chapter 11. But do not let your heart turn away from the Lord to worship other gods. If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain. And your harvest will fail. See, Elijah believed in the power of prayer. He knew that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. He knew that God would withhold the rain if his people went after other gods. And so he prayed that way. And notice how James just goes out of his way to let us know that Elijah was just like us. And he was nothing special. He was not some kind of spiritual superstar. His prayer was affected not because of its language, but because it was earnest. It was expectant, believing that God was going to make good on his word. That's what our prayers should be. You know, you have all the resources that you need in the person of Jesus Christ to accomplish what he has called you to do. Elijah had nothing additional than what you and I have. We serve the same God who never changes. He had the assurance of God's presence and his power. He, he embraced his calling from God. He had the word of God and not even as much as we do. And he believed in the power of prayer. You know, I am convinced that, that God wants to do something significant in and through your life in this coming new year to make a lasting impact for his kingdom. And he wants to use the Compass Church to, to reach here, near, and far, to, to engage in the most opportunistic time to spread the gospel in the history of the world. Now is the time to make ourselves available for him. Now is the time that we need to open our doors wide and, and to pray expectantly that God is going to work, that God is going to do something. And this is going to be a great new year as we trust in a great God to accomplish great things through us. All to his glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful tonight that we can be here on this last weekend of 2013 and, and think about what you want to do in our lives. There's so much that you want us to accomplish. There's so little time that we have. And you want us to do bold things for you. Thank you for giving us the enablement, the power, the presence of your Holy Spirit that allows us to go out and make a difference for you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.